This is why Small Business Matters from Northumbria University. Supporting small businesses with the Help to Grow Management Programme. Hello and welcome to episode six of Why Small Business Matters. My name is Matt Sutherland. In this episode, we explore internationalisation, taking your business and yourself to new foreign markets with someone who's done just that. You had to work the relationships, you had to understand the culture. If you could do that, you could do business anywhere in the world. That was the voice of Richard Swart. Global Sales and Quality Director of Burger, Richard has a breadth of business experience, including in Europe and in Asia. Richard himself is one of the Northeast's finest imports, as in 1988, Richard and his wife decided to make the move from Durban, South Africa, to County Durham and make the Northeast their new home. He's a man that makes things happen, championing Northeast business and holding senior roles in the Northeast Chamber of Commerce, including chair of the International Trade Committee. In July 2020, Richard established the Open North Foundation, a dedicated not-for-profit organization looking to support small businesses affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And when he's not doing all of that, he even fits in time to be chair of the Advanced Manufacturing Forum. Welcome, Richard. In the introduction, I talk about how you are extremely busy. And in fact, I think that's been a theme over your 34 years in business. But it all started in South Africa. What, what was it like growing up in South Africa? I, I did have a wonderful childhood in South Africa. Um, how, however, uh, it was in an unreal environment. Um, and fortunately, my father was um, uh, politically active. He was a lawyer and a member of parliament in the anti-apartheid, what was then known as the Progressive Party. And he, he continuously reminded us that we are not living in a, in a, in a fair society. That was important uh, for, for, for my development, um, because when I did grow up, of course, we were fully racially segregated. You know, we had separate schools, separate buses, separate residential areas, separate park benches, separate post office entrances, um, at the list goes on. Um, and so it was very much the minority white population were first class citizens, if you like, and very much a minority. Um, so we grew up in very entrenched apartheid South Africa, my siblings and I. Um, and gradually, um, we things began to change, and our family, uh, in our ways, were part of that change to try and adjust the the the, the, the evils of apartheid, if you like, and and, and normalize society. So it was it was um, dramatic, it was violent, it was tragic, um, it, it it was yeah, it was brutal, um, and very much. Um, in the dying days of the apartheid regime, comparable to the worst regimes that have ever existed in the world. Um, um, and so we were a small part of that process of trying to engineer change. And is that, I wonder if that led to your training as a journalist, because actually your father's there reminding you all of the time that there is, um, there's a story here to be told and actually there's a, there's a, there's a problem. And um, did that sort of influence your decision to um, train as a journalist? It, it, it definitely did, um, um, because my, my father was one of the youngest parliamentarians in South Africa's history. Um, um, and 
was very actively involved and 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 and, and, and therefore I came across journalists regularly and and I networked with them and I loved and uh, what they did uh, because in in those days of course you also had the, let's say the apartheid newspapers and the anti-apartheid newspapers and and by and large the english-speaking press were the 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 anti-apartheid newspapers and they played a leading role um, with very brave journalists um, being banned and detained and so on and and and, and I admired them and I um, I, that I saw a role for myself in that um, uh, to do a, that was a career that I could enjoy and 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 contribute to a better society um, uh, from. And did you take that responsibility on? Did you um, take that responsibility on? And did you continue the work that those journalists before you were doing? Or what type of journalist were you? What stories were you covering? I, I, the, the answer is yes, but ne never to the the high level that they did. Um, I was a young journalist. Um, I worked with many of these um, many of these journalists that I admired. Um, and I worked for a Sunday newspaper, um, and which was brilliant because you could get you could do in-depth stories for a Sunday newspaper as opposed to a daily. And by and large, I did a lot of uh, political stories. I was also a student leader on campus. I was president of the Students' Representative Council at the University of Natal in Durban, and that was at the peak of South African change and the brutality of the South African state. Um, so we had student leaders uh, simply disappearing or simply being jailed without trial. We had lecturers um, being assassinated. Um, we had um, um, many people simply disappearing. If you if you're white in those days, you had less chance of disappearing, but you could still nevertheless be jailed and detained. Uh, you had security, police brutality, um, and so on. So that. Um, w when I was at university, I was also editor of the student newspaper and then subsequently president of the student union and all of that shaped me. Um, and, and then I became a part-time journalist on the national newspaper and that developed into a full-time role as my, my time at university um, 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 ended. But, you know, we saw tear gassing of students um, you know, I was never charged with anything. I never broke any laws. But yeah, I was put in the back of a police van and and taken to security police headquarters, uh, simply simply because we had a placard and we were demonstrating against uh, very peacefully standing on a pavement, uh, twenty meters apart or so as it was required, with a placard saying um, uh, opposing detention without trial. A lot of students re had been detained student leaders had been turned so a lot of us had a silent protest if you like that was enough to encourage the south african state to send in the police with tear gas um, and and upset a, a very peaceful protest and put people in the back of the vans and, and take them to the security police headquarters my father at the time was the opposition spokesman for police and therefore had a relationship with the minister of police um, and that of course, gave me and my my student leaders a degree of protection, and so he made a phone call to the minister of police. The minister of police appeared to be shocked at what had happened, and he ordered our release. Um, and of course, no charges were broken. It was just an example of, of bullying by the state, um, and that and that happened regularly during my time. And 
and we experienced that mildly. Others were more brutally, you know, people were whipped, they were bitten by dogs, they were tied up and shot um, against trees. Um, th th there were political assassinations going on. Much of this subsequently came out in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was chaired by Desmond Tutu um, um, after, after uh, in the new South Africa, if you like. But since by the time you'd finished university, you'd seen an awful lot and you'd been politically active. Um, what prompted your decision then to to maybe make that move and leave South Africa? Because I believe you went to America. Um, there were several things. I mean, if you were a white male and you and you disagreed with what was going on, um, your choices were limited. Um, you, 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 th there was no hope at that time of the government releasing Mandela, unbanning the ANC. At that time, you were into a kind of a low-scale civil war. So if you were white, and a white male in particular, you were um, sucked into the system to defend, to defend the system. And I could not justify defending the system. So my options were either to go to jail for two to three years, and quite often in solitary confinement, mixing with hardened criminals, um, or, or um, go into the system and defend the system, which many of my friends had to do as they had no choice, or exercise my choice of um, sadly uh, leaving the country to look for um, an alternative career somewhere else. Um, and and that really was the trigger. I did spend a great high school year in Wisconsin um, um, and I did have a soft spot for America. At that time, also in South Africa, you had a state of emergency. So although you, you saw the bombing and attended the bombing, you also had to get approval from the police that the bombing actually happened. So there was very strict censorship. Um, so all those different reasons combined at that time meant that if you were a young white South African, and if you had a choice, unfortunately I did, um, you don't give up on your country of your birth, but uh, certainly you had to focus on your career um, going forward. And hence, um, America was the first port of call. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a very difficult decision to leave. And you, you made the decision to go to, to America. And what did you do? Did you continue your journalism career there uh, in LA? Um, I, 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 tr I tried to. Um, and the reality is, if you were a young but in journalist, and at that stage I was 24, um, and I had contacts with the LA Times um, from my contacts in South Africa and from my, my network in South Africa. But that became tricky because um, they couldn't justify giving me a job um, in LA to cover local issues when they're, of course, young Americans uh, applying for the same positions. Um, therefore, I did a range of things. I, I did market research um, and I got paid for that. But what I also did for t a two-week period, and this is most memorable for me, um, I got a construction job. And, and, and just for the record, I'm, I'm not a DIY person. Um, uh, the thought of doing a construction horrifies me. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, did a, I had a construction job and that was using a jackhammer breaking up concrete pavements in a house. This was a terrifying experience for me, but in many ways very formative for me because I, I couldn't last in that job physically because you would get home at night and you're just shaking. You'd go to sleep shaking, your arms are shaking because it's vibrations. 
but nevertheless, what that did for me, um, it was a huge learning experience for me. And from that point on, in particular, I respected people doing any type of job in the world. And that helped me, actually. Uh, I, I attribute that experience in shaping my how I aspire to, to treat people and, and conduct myself with all levels of society um, and, and, and respect people regardless of the job they do. And that was hugely formative for me, that, that jackhammer experience. <laughs> so so yeah, I like the way that your eyes were opened and actually not to dismiss anybody that has a more manual job or uh, compared to those with you know high, high skill sets. So um, you were in America, you were doing a variety of jobs, manual and um, desk-based. How long were you there? Uh, how long were you there in America? Um, I, I was in LA for um, six to seven months. And when I was in LA, um, through family in South Africa, Italian family in South Africa, um, it's, it, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short. They had a contact, a business contact in Germany, who was setting up a business in the northeast of England, um, in Peter Lee. And he, and this happened to be a Mr. Berger, and the business and the group I'm in is, is Berger Group. Um, at that stage, of course, we were a family business and now we are stock listed. But Mr. Berger had a German manager um, and then there was a falling out and then he, just, he realized he needed an English speaking manager. So knowing that I, through the Italians in South Africa, that I was in LA and I was available, uh, as tenuous as that, um, I got offered the job to relocate to the uh, northeast of England to set up the, the business from scratch, really, uh, on behalf of Mr. Berger. So actually what happened was my my wife was in Italy for six or seven months when I was in, my wife-to-be was in Italy uh, for six or seven months um, while I was in LA. We then both went back to South Africa, got married on October the 15th, 1988. October the 16th, 1988, left for Germany for, for, for four to six weeks of training and preparation and then drove over from Germany uh, to Newcastle to get our keys for our apartment in, in Durham and to set up the business in Burger UK. Fantastic. So 1988, <laughs> the, that, is the, uh, that is the year which everything changed. And it's interesting, Richard, because you talk about a general manager role and that's what they wanted you to do. Had you ever been a general manager at that point? Uh, uh, n- n- no experience whatsoever. Um, um, I, I will say that in, in my various degrees at university, I, I did do psychology um, and history. Uh, they were my two majors. And actually, um, both of those are quite helpful. Psychology and dealing with people and managing people and, and history for analysis um, um, of, of, of the, the critiques and so on of, of, of business and, and planning. Um, so no, I had no idea what's a, a ever of, of running a business. Um, I also couldn't imagine that there would be a business making the products we do. Burger Group um, manufacture millions of metal closing bands or rings that are used to hold lids onto container drums and barrels. So it's a metal hoop that goes around the top, it snaps shut, it holds the lid on, and, and the these drums go on trucks, they go on planes, they go on trains, they go on ships, and 
many of them have UN requirements they've got to comply with to be able to carry certain substances. So our closing ban is part of that complete package that makes makes it work. So it was a, it was a, it was a huge learning curve for me, and of course I didn't know much about Newcastle. I knew London very well, but uh, northeast of England was totally foreign to me. Mm, so this is it. So you've got an impression of what a general manager is. You've got lots of life experience, and you've been living in South Africa, and of course more recently in LA. And you arrive in 1988 to uh, to the northeast of England. What what was that like when you arrived, and what what did your wife think? Well, let let me say um, we 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 had to drive straight in straight to Newcastle City Centre to the headquarters of uh, the Northern Development Company, and that was in a bleak November evening. We had to get the keys. They had chosen a two-bed apartment for us in Norburn Park, uh, just outside Durham. So we had to arrive late at night uh, into this two-bedroom apartment. Um, we also had a few weeks later an engineer joining us and staying with us, uh, having just got married um, um, and in this two-bedroom apartment in Norburn Park. Um, so it was hugely challenging because for that reason alone, but also we didn't know anybody. We had no friends, no, no, no uh, contacts other than the Northern Development Company and um, County Durham Development Company as, as it was. Um, so no sense of value, um, what's cheap, what's expensive, no idea of central heating. And, and, and in fact, in that apartment in Auburn Park, um, uh, we left our electric heating on all day um, out of uh, pure, pure naivety, uh, because of course in South Africa we don't have heating, we don't need heating, uh, certainly in Durban, South Africa. Um, so we had to get a special concession from Northern Electric as it was, uh, because we couldn't pay the bills. Um, so, what was the bill? Can you remember? Oh, it was ridiculous. It was something like uh, two thousand um, uh, pounds, uh, and and we had to explain to them um, and and pay it off over time. Um, but that was a huge, sharp learning curve. And then, of course, we had the shell of the factory identified that had been chosen by the parent company in in, in Peterlee, um, and the machines were organized in Germany to be shipped over. So that had been done. So my job was then to build around that. Uh, we had the engineer to help with the installation of the machines, but then you had to shape the business. You had to recruit uh, uh, tool and die makers. You had, to, you had to recruit production staff. You had to train them. You had to put systems in because of course there were no systems. We had uh, health and safety, um, quality, um, uh, contracts of employment, um, uh, uh, finances. Remember, you had limited computers in those days. Um, we had word processors. We didn't have cell phones then, of course, as well. Um, so, so communications were. Um, you had to travel a lot more um, um, to deal with issues at work, um, and um, it was a very difficult two or three years, but um, very formative for me as well. And of course, we had our honeymoon a, a year later. Um, because th there was no chance, there was no time. There was no time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Where did you go? Did you... <laughs> uh, well, we went to America. <laughs> so, 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 so I went to Wisconsin where, of course, I had a very uh, memorable year as an exchange student. So we went to America, we did, uh, we went, sorry, Wisconsin, we did Florida, and of course went back to LA. 
where my brother uh, was and is located. Um, so we did a, and we did Hawaii as well, mind you, because in those days you could get a three-week uh, Delta Airlines um, pass where you could fly wherever you wanted um, as often as you wanted, but you had to fly standby. Um, yes, so, yeah, yeah. And tell yeah, me, at the yeah. end of the three weeks, was your wife keen to go back to Peter Lee or did she get a taste for America again? Was she, uh, was she okay to go back? She, she was okay to go back. But the biggest change for us, I suppose, with the north, northeast of England versus Durban, South Africa, and, and for her in particular, was the weather change, the climate. You know, Durban is subtropical, uh, Indian Ocean, warm beaches and so on. And, and coming to the northeast, we had to review the clothes we wore, the sports we played, um, and how we lived our lives, actually. It was, it was, a, it was a far more um, uh, um, um, challenging climate than what we were accustomed to. Yeah, and actually, well, when you were talking there, Richard, I was thinking when you were saying about the systems you were putting in place, these are the, you had to deal with the culture of a Northeast culture compared to, well, previously America and, of course, um, traditionally South Africa. So different culture, but you actually lived a very different culture as well. You had to change all of your behaviour. How did the culture differ then when working with your team in the northeast of England compared to, say, in, in LA or in, in South Africa? What were, what were the key differences? One of the initial challenges was simply accent. Um, um, I mean, I, I, I have, of course, we all have accents, and, 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 and I've got a, a fairly typical South African accent. Um, so, so working in Peterley, you can get very, very, very strong local accents. So, so, so many times we had to request people to repeat what they were saying because we, we just simply couldn't get it and, and vice versa. So that was the challenge. Um, but once, once you tune into that, um, 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 things progress quite nicely. And I will say this, and I, and I repeated it wherever I go, that um, if you get it right in Peter Lee with your people, um, uh, they are the, uh, the best in the world. Um, 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 it's had a challenge. Peter Lee's had a challenging time, a challenging history, but you, you do get people um, in those early days who wanted to work, who wanted to make a difference, um, and they were they were proved absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So actually, if you got it right, you had a very loyal workforce and a good workforce. Um, what 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 were there any financial benefits for for starting up in Peter Lee? Were you do you know if you were offered any subsidies at all? Was was there any? Yeah. What what were you offered? Uh, it, it, indeed. I mean, I mean that 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 was certainly a consideration uh, by Mr. Berger uh, in choosing Peter Lee. Uh, he was introduced to the Northern Development Company um, as it as it was, it, um, and, and they looked after foreign investment. So yes, we we got we got um, what was known as the um, there were two grants, regional development grants that we got, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. linked to um, capital investment and job creation, and and, and and they were extremely helpful. So actually, then you've you've been you've been in Peter Lee. You're 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 adjusting yourself, your wife. You're you're now getting accustomed to being in the Northeast. Um, what was the business like? What, how was it going? How, sort of three years in, was was business booming or was it challenging? Um, we, we we had a serious competitor, so we we were um, newcomers to the market. Um, Berger had been exporting from Germany to the UK, um, so we did start off with some business, certainly. Um, but we, within five. To seven years, I think it was. We we became the market leader, 
um, and we doubled the size of the factory um, and, 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 and we doubled the number of people we're employing. And, and, and to this day, touch wood, we are the market leaders um, um, and we, we export also to other countries in the world, uh, although we have limitations because the group is located around the world too. Um, so we, 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 we have to decide where we export to and not tread on toes. You're listening to Why Small Business Matters. Find out how Northumbria University can help your business thrive through the Help to Grow Management Programme, delivered by leading small business and enterprise experts from Northumbria University with the support of leading figures from industry and experienced entrepreneurs. The programme supports senior managers of small and medium-sized businesses to boost their business's performance, resilience and long-term growth. The 12-week programme is 90% funded by the government and the fee payable by participants is £750 and has been designed to allow participants to complete it alongside full-time work. The in-depth, high-quality curriculum supports you to build your capabilities in leadership, innovation, digital adoption, employee engagement, marketing, responsible business and financial financial management. By the end of the program, you'll develop a business growth plan to help you lead your business to realize its potential. To find out more about the program, the modules, eligibility and fees and delivery dates, go to northumbria.ac.uk slash help to grow. You're listening to Why Small Business Matters. And in this episode, we're exploring internationalization with Richard Swart, Global Sales and Quality Director at Berger. Peter Lee. And I was just saying in the introduction that this is a pre-COVID, you were traveling up to 180 business flights per per year. And it's actually that export, which I think is an interesting piece to touch on, because as you know, Northumbria is leading on the Help to Grow Management program and internationalization is something which is um, really of an appetite to the SMEs that are, that are working with us. You took the decision, didn't you, to uh, to go full circle and to, to look for the field in Europe and in China. Um, wh- what was the decision-making process with that? First of all, Berger, the family business, sold to a holding company, which became stock-listed. Um, and therefore, there were a number of acquisitions. Um, and, and that's an ongoing process as we, as, as, as we talk now. So the game changed. Um, I, I relocated to Germany for three and a half years to become the Geschäftsführer uh, or, or, or managing director, if you like, of Berger Germany, the parent company. We had internal problems which needed to be sorted out. Um, so, so that was an initial start. And while I was doing that, I had to look after the UK, but I also um, researched China and set up Berger China. Um, and which I did for five years. Um, while we were doing that, we also bought a company in Turkey. Um, we bought companies in Italy. We bought um, a, a massive collection of companies, uh, one group though, um, in, in the USA. So therefore, your customer base expanded and there were huge issues and challenges within the group on how to manage um, try and get reasonably consistent quality standards across the group to, to, to our internal standards, how to manage um, global contracts and any contradictions which may exist um, uh, between existing contracts and, if you like, acquired contracts uh, through, the, through our acquisitions um, and the same companies. 
Um, so that led to all this travel. And it's interesting. Where, where do you start? You talk about doing some research and going into China. And a lot of the SMEs that we're working with are asking those questions. Where, how do we do it? Where do we start when we're researching a new market? What, what did you do? We, we did it the hard way and, and probably the wrong way. So the, the, view, the view of the holding company was we go into China as Burger Germany and and the Chinese love German quality and so on and so forth. And um, so we must do it that way. Um, so that's one element we subsequently had to moderate. Um, we then, I did the research the hard way. So I went in and did regular visits to, to China, to Chinese companies around China. I went to conference, industry conferences. I went to small villages, big cities, and I gathered the data. Um, that we were interested in, our competition, our customers. Um, we did have common multinational groups that we supplied in Europe, which had subsidiaries in China, so that was a good, the doors were open that way too. Um, so it was, it was blood, sweat and tears to research the data, to research your price points, to research local suppliers. Um, and um, we, we, we had to... Where, where our model initially was wrong was we, had, we were in China for China. We weren't in China to export back to Europe. The primary objective was to be in the Chinese market. And where we got it wrong was trying to give them European quality in China, when actually, by and large, um, they, it was actually need to give them Chinese quality in China. Um, so so-called European quality, I don't like using these terms, mind you, uh, but so-called European quality was still required, but in, 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 in very specific areas of our market. So dangerous liquids that go in drums needed particular quality metal closing bands, and that was largely for export. So for that, the, the, the Chinese would talk about European quality, they needed that. But for the local market at that stage, um, they need something far more basic than what we are offering and far cheaper. So, 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 the, so that was a mistake we made through experience. And how long did that take for that penny to drop on that? Then how long did it take until you realised actually you maybe had to change that model? Over probably four to five years. And, 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 and the other issue we had was we had agreed price points um, be, uh, before setting up in China with key players in the Chinese market. Um, and they were delighted to have us there because we were competition and we would improve, the, raise the levels as they saw it in China. Um, so the problem we had was when we got there and actually had done the investment, put the machines in, um, we were committed. They were less committed to the price points agreed. Um, um, and. And that put us under huge pressure. Um, um, and we had email agreements. Um, we weren't, the, nobody was keen to give a contract, if you like, but, but we, we used the email as, as closest to a, con, a formal contract we could get. And that was a huge challenge and pressure. So we had to work on reducing our prices, reducing or reviewing our supply base and changing supplies to maximize the chance of competitiveness. We subsequently bought a competitor in China as well. Um, which was which was also helpful. So actually, you think moving if you think about moving into a new market, you would 
clearly think there was going to be challenges. But of course, there is a there's an appetite to do it. What were the benefits of in of you being in China for those four to five years? For me, it was a, it was also a huge learning curve because it, it comes back to this point about uh, people around the world, and, uh, and and I firmly believe we all want the same thing, whatever we look like, whatever our language is, and whatever our culture is. The basics are there for all of us. Um, and the benefits were, yeah, you could do business in China. Um, you had to work the relationships, you had to understand the culture. Um, and um, if you could do that, um, you could do business anywhere in the world. But all of these, all of these travels, you are, you are simply emerging yourself in these new cultures and these different cultures. And actually, um, we know from episode one of this podcast series, and you know Caroline Theobald, of course, very well. Caroline and Ollie Barrett talk about the importance of establishing networks. And now you've moved to Peter Lee. You didn't know anyone, but by this time you must have a global network um, from all of your travels and all of your business dealings. Indeed, that's true. I mean, I've been in the industry for approaching 34 years now, and therefore I've been in Durham for approaching 34 years. And certainly um, in the early days in Peter Lee, what I did do, Pretty early on, I, I joined the Chamber of Commerce, the Northeast England Chamber of Commerce, and that was brilliant, and that and that remains a brilliant organisation um, for one to learn and develop um, um, what makes the region tick. Um, and that that as time went on, I, I had different positions in the chamber, and using my South African connections, we've also um, we engineered an, an MOU between Newcastle City Council and Durban City Council, which is where I'm, where I'm from. And the Northeast Chamber of Commerce has an MOU with the Durban Chamber of Commerce. Um, there's been reciprocal trade missions to and from um, more or less every year since 2013. Uh, a big trade seminars held in the center of Newcastle. Uh, more recently, County Durham, Durham County Council have tended to lead with it and they've hosted delegations uh, pre-COVID um, uh, just to keep that cont- continuity. And in fact, during COVID, we had some uh, webinars organized as well. Um, so that's that's been an ongoing process. And in, in the industry, of course, you go to conferences around the world. We have global con- conferences in our industry. We are all to do with the transport of ham- hazard- ha- uh, hazardous chemicals, um, pharmaceuticals, nuclear waste, uh, paint, oil, and so on. So it's a huge industry globally, but it's a, a small number of players. So. As time goes on, yeah, you do become senior in the industry, um, and 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 um, and your network is there. And and I've always believed in networking. I think it's essential for us all to learn from each other, uh, to be exposed to different ideas, different people, different industries. That's all part of our wonderful uh, learning experience in in, in our life. Uh, it's our global experience of, of of the world. Really, it's an it's an it's a never-ending learning experience. You've, yeah, fantastic. I mean, you've got this global footprint, and it's interesting that you talk about pre-COVID because you'd already expanded Burger, you'd been abroad, you'd tried dude markets, and you'd been there for a substantial period of time. How did COVID, how did the COVID pandemic and Brexit impact Burger and the role and the momentum that you had as a business? Um, indeed, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, but let me say, in terms of Brexit, I, I, I am and remain a very proud Remainer, and, and, and I wear that badge with honour. Um, I, I do think time will prove 
Brexit to be the wrong decision. Having said that, when Bre the Brexit decision has been made, we must move on. We must each, uh, we can't stand back and watch. We've got to make it work to the best of our ability. And we've also got to speak uh, truth to power. In the Burger experience, the, the truth is um, the first two months of Brexit were really hard. Uh, we, we had to uh, cancel exports to the EU, uh, four or five containers a month. Uh, that was in January last year, 2021. And that was because of uh, uh, freight increases, um, delays in port, um, um, and and custom surcharges not, not, not built in to the very tight uh, pricing model that we had to the, for, for our exports. So it didn't work for us. In a sad way, uh, COVID helped in a sad way because what COVID did was there were delays in port, there were price increases, there were shortages of products and so on. So, so COVID for our business submerged the Brexit problems um, 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 because the COVID problems were just much, much bigger. And the issue for our customers um, abroad uh, and locally actually was simply to get product. Uh, uh, we are all couldn't get, we are all about steel. We couldn't get steel. There were steel shortages, steel cancellations, uh, uh, container displacement around the world. So pricing and delivery on time um, became very secondary to simply getting delivery at some point. Um, but what worries me with Brexit, you know, we are, we are far from over. People think Brexit's done. No, it's not done. The Northern Ireland Protocol, the government regrets the agreement they, they themselves engineered and signed. And if they decide to rip that up, you've got um, you, the, the EU are likely to tear up the so-called deal we got and put us in a far worse position. You know, if we had tariffs, tariffs are very worrying. Tar tariffs will call out, cause our business um, uh, massive damage. Um, and and, and uh, so one continuously worries about that. Brexit and COVID have, have contributed to staff shortages um, uh, too, and that's become acute for uh, not only for manufacturers, but you speak to banks, speak to accountancy firms, you speak to um, uh, pretty much across the board. We're all saying the same thing. We can't get people, never mind skilled people. Um, and this is a worry for small businesses and big businesses going forward. COVID particularly struck a chord with you, though, didn't it? Because you decided to take a proactive approach to supporting um, your colleagues in your um, neighbouring businesses in the northeast to try to provide a bit of a lifeline to help these businesses impacted by COVID. How did that decision come about? Um, indeed. I mean, in the early days of COVID, we cast our minds back, the, the NHS and others were calling out for help. They needed ventilators and we needed PPE. We, uh, the, the demands were huge and people were dying left, right and center in, in old age homes and so on. It was just a very, very sad, worrying time for us all. And we all really in our hearts wanted to do something desperate, you know, beyond clapping our hands for the NHS on the front doorstep. Um, so some of us in the business community um, wanted to do something, but we didn't know what. Um, our businesses didn't lend themselves to helping the NHS. So, so we thought what we could do is um, 
help the business community more impacted by COVID um, recover from COVID. Um, and so I consulted fairly widely throughout the Northeast business community and I would say six, seven out of ten were very positive that we set up uh, an organization, if you like, to help Northeast businesses in their recovery and, and, and that became the um, Open North Foundation, um, which is absolutely not for profit, it's a social enterprise, um, not a penny raised or spent on anything other than the reason we are set up um, and that is gone pretty well we've got we've raised tens of thousands of pounds of donations from the business community and a massive strategic a huge hugely important strategic partner for us uh, of course is Newcastle Business School um, who who, who um, have contributed well they contributed 10,000 pounds plus a very strong partnership has developed with regular input and exchange and offering of training courses and so on to benefit the Northeast business community so the Open North Foundation still exists, it, 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 it will evolve as COVID evolves um, and the objective was to make a difference, um, even if it was a small difference, uh, we, did, we didn't know how much money we would raise um, and that objective remains to, to maximise that difference as best as we can um, uh, in the environment and the constraints in which we operate. And it's made a huge impact. And can you say how many businesses, can you give us a flavour of how many businesses have benefited from the, um, the the construction of the ONF in July 2020? How many businesses have gone on to benefit? It's The, the number is 20 at the moment. Uh, and, and that's 20 out of uh, something like 150 applications, which is about par for the cause, apparently, with such things, because many of these applications are rejected for good reason. Um, we have to be very careful um, on the money we've raised and how we use it. We, we, we don't give uh, easy money, it is free money, but it's got to be demonstrated that uh, it's going to um, uh, a, what we believe to be a credible business uh, with chances of survival. And, and um, so that's, that's where, where, where we are at at the moment. Um, and and we, we've evolved our offering to businesses um, who were uh, uh, viable pre-COVID to those during COVID, uh, who, those who've set up during COVID and those re established businesses recently impacted by Omicron. So it's an ongoing process and, and, and we may evolve into something else at some stage, um, but when that happens, we will fully engage with our partners and um, that includes Northumbria University and Teesside University, who have been hugely important to us. And I think listening to you today, Richard, based on all of the experiences that you've had across your life and all of the, the work that you've done, the 34 years industry experience, I wonder what you would say your youngest, you would tell your younger self if you, uh, if you met them in 1988 with that whopping great electricity bill in, in Durham. What would, you, what would you tell them now from the, your, 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 um, your experience in business? What would be the three things you think they, they should know to set them onto the right path? I'm not sure about three things, but what I will say is you've, you've got to be a good communicator. You've got to be a good listener and you've got to be, um, be able to speak um, respectfully to, to all parties. Um, I think you've got to be, have a fundamental honesty uh, in how you conduct yourselves with people and integrity because that, that should come through. Um, I've become less tolerant 
uh, the older one gets with uh, people um, engaging in sound bites or, or statements without substance or without backbone. Um, and I think maybe I'm getting old and irritable, I think. I turned 60 last week, by the way, so, so, so maybe I, I'm reflecting that. But, but, but you do demand of people a certain honesty and frankness and consistency in communications and people doing what they're saying. Uh, if you, uh, and, and if you do what you say on time, um, and if not, communicate. And, and, and that's what I'll say to my children. Um, um, uh, respectful to all people, communicate well and do what you say. Finally, Richard, congratulations, because you are also now the new chairman of the Advanced Manufacturing Forum. And how are you finding that role? Um, yeah, indeed. I mean, they, they approached me um, early 2021 and I um, accepted um, with pleasure. Um, they have been established for 15 to 20 years. Um, I knew that the highly respected individual who formed it um, and had a lot of time for him and in, in, uh, since 2015 when I really got to know him well. Um, that was Jeff Ford from Ford Aerospace. Um, the Advanced Manufacturing Forum has an incredibly important part to play. Um, uh, during COVID, like many membership organizations, they were impacted. Um, and they've asked me to come on board to help um, um, raise their voice, if you like, in the region and, 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 and strengthen the voice of manufacturing in the region. Um, manufacturing has a huge role to play um, uh, in the Northeast in particular, and, and quite often it's neglected and it doesn't have uh, a, a strong, uh, strong voices on key issues. Um, or the message can be divided. So the objective, the, the objective is to work with all like-minded organizations who have a common passion for manufacturing in the region and together strengthen that voice um, and, um, and, and therefore strengthen manufacturing in the Northeast. Um, and I'm delighted to say that we've, we, in the last six months or so, we've had a 40% increase in membership um, and more members projected uh, to, to happen in the next few, to, to join in the next few months. And, and, and new strategic partners um, shortly to be announced as well. Thank you so much to my guest, Richard Swartz, and for sharing insights into internationalisation. Don't forget to listen back to previous episodes focusing on networking with Ollie Barrett and Caroline Theobald and hearing about John McCabe's new role as Chief Executive of the Northeast Chamber of Commerce. Find out how Northumbria University can help your business through the Help to Grow Management Scheme through visiting northumbria.ac.uk slash help to grow. <laughs>